All right. Well, today we are continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us for the last year, uh, we've been in Matthew. And today we're starting a new chapter. We are in chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at a pretty long passage, which is verses 1 through 23. So if you like to follow along in your Bibles, uh, that's where we're going to be at. And it's a long passage, and within the passage, right in the middle of the passage, there's wrapped into it uh, a, kind of another teaching. So you have kind of a teaching wrapped around a teaching. So what we're going to do is we'll take two weeks, actually, to, to look at this. And, uh, but before we get into it, I want to ask you a question. Uh, and I've asked this before, so some of you uh, may have actually figured this out. But I wanted to ask, how many times in your estimation... Do you think you heard the gospel before you decided, before you became a follower of Christ? And I know you, some of you haven't had a chance to think about that, but I've shared with you before, when you, can, when you combine together the, the sermons, the Sunday school, the youth things that I had to go to, my parents made me do, uh, I heard the gospel presentation, a conservative estimate would be over 300 times before becoming a believer. I wasn't one of these folks that heard it once, and became a believer, or heard it a handful of times, and became a believer. My wife kind of heard it a handful of times, I'd say, uh, before she became a believer, so she was more of an uh, early adopter than I was. I was a long, it took a long time. And you might say that I became a believer because I was finally just worn down, you know, after hearing it 300 times or, or more. But really, that's not the truth. Uh, if anything, I became more and more resistant as, as time went along, as I kept hearing this and hearing this, and that, that constant rejection of it sort of set a pattern within me of rejection. And it wasn't as though I had a whole lot of deep, dark sins that I, I wanted to hang on to. I had sin in my life. It was a fairly pedestrian types of sin, but it was there. But my, sin, my sins still had the effect, though, of separating me from God. My sin still carried the same consequences as it would have carried if I had committed the sin of murder or the sin of the lies that I often told. Uh, they were all leading me to an eternal destination, which was hell. And so when I became a believer, when I responded to the gospel of Christ, this particular passage we're going to be looking at today was always intriguing to me because it's the passage of the sower and the seed. Uh, in English, sower is kind of a, an old-fashioned term for farmer, the guy that throws the seed. When you sow seed, it's, it's you're throwing it like this. And so... This is the passage we're looking at today. And what we're going to do is this parable is kind of broken up. It has kind of the first third is verses 1 through 9 when Jesus teaches in the parable. Then in 10 through 17, there's this discussion about understanding the Word of God, which is we're going to look at actually next week. And then in the last third, uh, 18 through 23, Jesus explains this parable. And this is a very uh, well-known parable, very a foundational parable for many believers. Uh, so let's take a look at it. So Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 1, it says this. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, 
and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let them hear. Now this is the section we'll look at next week, but this is how it goes in the scripture. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even that which he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what this par- what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who receives the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since it has no root, it only lasts a short time. When trouble and persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but worries about this life and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop, yielding a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. So as I mentioned over the years, you know, I have found this teaching of the sower or the seed to be intriguing because there's a lot in this and this sound this is one of those typical examples of Jesus where he teaches something that on the surface sounds very kind of simple and easy to understand but it has within it deep undertones and questions which are which are deep ones you have to go in kind of a deep dive into understanding how God deals with people to 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 understand it and to really apply it and as I've searched the scriptures to my knowledge this is the longest parable that Jesus bothers to explain. Most of the time, Jesus doesn't explain the parables at all. He just teaches, he'll say something, and he just kind of leaves it out there, which is very typical of the way Jewish rabbis teach, even to this day. Uh, Jewish rabbis will often just tell a story, and they don't tell you what you're to think of it. They just kind of throw it out there, which is one reason why there's this tradition within Judaism of discussing the Old Testament stories, because as I've told you many times, the Old Testament doesn't really explain itself very often. It's just people see God doing this, and then they say, well, this is what God did, and it leaves it up to people to, to try and kind of figure out or to, to discuss what it is God's doing and why, which is a good thing. It makes us, forces us to think and engage. But sometimes Jesus teaches in, within the parable. Sometimes it's very short, like this one, Matthew seven twenty four. He actually explains the meaning of the parable while he tells the parable. 
The, for example, this is one, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So right there, he explains what this is about. Those who hear my words, put them into practice. He's like a wise man who, puts, who, who builds his house on the rock. And then conversely, he goes on to say, The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice. Is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So within this small parable, Jesus explains the meaning while he's telling the parable. You know, those who hear these words, put them into practice or don't put them into practice. But in this parable with the farmer, he just goes right into it. It just says, he told them many things in parables, saying, and then he goes and he tells the farmer went out to sow his seed. We just read it. We don't need to read it again. But he doesn't really give any explanation. And this is actually the more common way Jesus tells parables. He just goes into it. He doesn't tell you what he means. He doesn't tell you why he's doing it, what, what he's trying, the point he's trying to get across. He just tells the story. Now, I don't know about you, but while I do find it interesting that Jesus explains this parable, in this section of Scripture, the parable isn't the confusing part to me. And maybe, maybe to you it was, but for me, the confusing part is this bit in the center, verses 10 through 17, when he talks about, you know, uh, what they ask him, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus almost seems to say, I teach in parables so that they won't understand you know, that, that kind of seems what he's saying, right? And it's, it's very odd. I mean, if I were a disciple back then, and, and, and my words were written down in the Bible, you would have something like this. Yea, Lord. You know, one of the disciples spoke up and said, that's a fine-looking young man there. Yea, Lord, we thank thee for this fine explanation regarding your, yon farmer and his scattered seed. But what about this bit about those seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not understand? This is the part I find the most perplexing, and I get it not. Now that's, that, that would be my words in the Scripture if they were, but fortunately, I'm not in there. So as we look about, look at the, so today we're just going to look at the parable. Next week, we'll look at that part in the middle. So what is the issue in the parable here? Well, the issue isn't that there isn't enough seed. There isn't enough of the word. The word is in abundance. The word is being scattered in abundance. The issue isn't that, that, the, that there aren't enough opportunities to hear the gospel. The issue is where the seed falls. Where does it land? And of course, Jesus tells us that each one of these types, where the soil types, where the, where the word lands, is really representative of a person's heart or a person's soul, where they receive or how they receive the word. And in this... We have three different enemies to our faith. And this can be, this can be, it depends on, it doesn't really matter how you see it. Sometimes this can be like three different people, or sometimes this can be just you, one person, in different stages in your spiritual growth. Sometimes your heart is hard. Sometimes your heart is receptive. Sometimes it's somewhere in between. But let's look at this, and we'll look at the three enemies to the faith, and then we'll also look at where our Savior is. And actually, that's going to come more next week. So the first seed being thrown out there says this. Jesus explains it. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is a seed sown along the path. So the first enemy, Jesus makes it clear to us, the first enemy to our faith is Satan. But I think the more important thing is to, is to focus on what is a path? Because 
It's the issue that the, that the seed fell on the path that's the problem. And what is a path? Some of you come from, from countries that, that you're very familiar with, a, a path that goes through a forest or a path that goes through the fields. A path is a place that the village or the society has decided this is the, the easiest and quickest way from point A to point B, and everyone chooses to walk this way. And so the path is that well-worn place that everyone has kind of collectively decided within the community is the quickest and easiest way to go. And so this path becomes worn. When Cindy and I were in, the, in, the, in Lesotho, uh, I, used to, I, I taught agriculture and English. And it used to drive me crazy that the students would walk from their dorms to the classrooms they would sometimes walk right through the middle of these fields that we had cultivated so that we could grow food for the school. And it would drive me crazy. I would run out there and yell at the students, don't walk through the fields! And it, and it had no effect at all. Yeah, the students just continually walked through the fields. And, and sure enough, after we would plow the fields, get them ready for, for, for seeding, after a few days, you could start seeing the path because the kids would just walk on this easy path from their dorms to the school. And finally, I just gave up and I said, okay, the field is here and it's here and here's the path because the kids are going to walk on it anyway. And what happens when you, and the reason why you don't want them to walk through the field is the soil becomes compact, it becomes hard, and it's hard for anything to grow in it. And so really, that's what a path is. A path is that place that the whole world has said, this is the way to go. This is the easy way to go. And in fact, Cindy, when she used to go from village to village to teach uh, teachers, they would, she would walk on these you know, paths. You didn't have any signposts saying go here. You just had a path to follow. And you were told at the end of this path is the village you're trying to get to. And the only thing that she had to really guide her was this path, this thing that she could see where everyone else had gone. That's what prevented her from going left to the right. She could see where everyone has gone. And so the message of the path is that this is the way that you should go if you want to live, if you want to get to your destination, if you want to just have the comfortable, the, the best combination of ease and, and safety, this is the way you should go. And as a result, when you talk about the path, you don't want to go a different way. You, you, don't, you don't want to go to the left or to the right because you might not end up where you want to go. So there's a safety message that's in the path. But the path that the world tells us to follow is one which leads to damnation. And it leads to damnation because it doesn't lead us to God. It's as simple as that. It's not that necessarily everyone who's on the path to hell is like the most evil person you can conjure up in your mind. There's some very nice people on that broad path. But it doesn't lead to God. And that becomes the issue. Like we read in the, in the scripture today, the path of destruction is wide. The road that leads there is easy to follow. This is a motif that Jesus has more than once in his, scripture, in the, in his teachings because he wants to make it clear that his way is going to run counter to the way of the world. And so his way is going to say, come off the path. And Satan knows that. So the goal of Satan, when it comes to this parable that we read here, is to keep the path clear of anything that might distract you from staying on the path, 
Because if you were to walk on the path and you see a bunch of seed on it, it might cause you to look to the left or look to the right and go, well, maybe this is, this is a better way to go. Satan doesn't want you to think, so he comes and he says that he's like the birds of the air. He picks up all the seed. He removes the distraction of the word so that you can just stay on it straight ahead and feel like you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing by, you know, following the, the, the right education path and getting the right kind of job, and marrying the right kind of person, and saving the right kind of way, or spending in the right kind of way. You know, the world tells you these are all the things you need to do to achieve what the world calls a success. And I've had, for example, when it comes to the, the, uh, the path, I've had people in my own family, when I was starting to go into the ministry, frankly, kind of question my sanity. You know, why are you doing this? This is not going to lead you to anything that's going to be successful. And so there's these distractions on the way. And on that well-worn path, Satan doesn't have to be creative. He doesn't have to think a lot. All he has to do is make sure any distraction is out of the way, so you just continue moving forward toward that place of destruction. And if you want to see this in its current form in our world today... You know, the online thing, is there's these groups, the influencers. You know, these are the folks that are all about putting forth an image that the world says, this is the image you should have. And that image is filtered so that there's all the blemishes are gone, and it's this fake kind of plastic image. There's this one lady named Khloe Kardashian. She's totally freaking out because an unfiltered picture of her was posted online. And she's just completely losing her mind. She's like seeing psychologists and all this because of, the, of the, the trauma of an unfiltered picture of her being online. Now, granted, it was an unfiltered picture without a lot covering up stuff, but that was kind of her choice. But there are lots of unfiltered pictures of me online. You know? I don't think there's a filtered picture of me online. But it's just kind of where this generation is at because this, they, they have these kind of shallow ways to measure their success, measure their influence, all at the same time while peddling, you know, products which don't really matter. And it's not just this generation. My generation, we didn't have the online influencers, but we had other ways to follow that shallow and kind of pointless way of life that the world told us, this is what you want to look like. And so if you're on that path, and some of you are, and I think especially younger people, when you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life, you're trying to figure out everything about the next 60, 70 years ahead of you, the, the path that the world offers is very attractive because it's well laid out. It's worn into the, the society. And you know, if I just do what everyone else did, I'll end up at the place that everyone else is at. The problem is, where they're at beyond this life is an issue. And so if you're on that path, I would encourage you to not allow yourself to be distracted. If you're hearing this today and you're on that well-worn path, right now the seed is being scattered into your life. And sure enough, Satan's going to try and come and make you just forget all about this so you don't get distracted. But I would encourage you to stop and to not allow that to be taken from your heart. The second enemy that Jesus talks about is this one. It says, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, it lasts only a short time. 
And then he gets into, this is the actual enemy. When trouble and persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. You could call this several things. I chose to call this the enemy uh, is the world in this place. Because, let's face it, the world is a rough place. We live in Germany right now. I'm assuming everyone that's sitting here today and I have a good majority of the folks who are watching today. You know, we live in Germany today. Germany is a fairly benign place when it comes to faith. You know, there's some issues you might run into if you want to go to certain schools or get certain jobs that are with the state church. But there are usually workarounds on these things. I've witnessed it here at IBCD. But... There are places in the world to this day, and, we, and the one reason why we pray about it and we bring it up in our prayer time, the different persecuted, persecuted places in the world, the, there's a lot of places in the world where being a Christian is not just an inconvenience, but it's a threat to your life. And some of you may have lived that. I haven't. I can't really say that I have ever been persecuted because of my faith. This is, this is uh, one that I can talk about but have no personal uh, experience with. I know people who have. And it always kind of surprises me to hear that this sort of thing happens. And when I actually meet someone who tells me, yeah, when I became a believer, I lost my job, my wife left me or my husband left me, I had to leave the country, my family even threatened to kill me, that just kind of blows my mind because that's the sort of thing that I've never even come anywhere close to experiencing and if you read this passage, that's the issue that this person has. They receive the word with joy. They, they, they embrace it. They feel it. They want it. But then they get hit with persecution. And usually that persecution comes early in their faith. One of the things that I've noticed, and this is, I do think this is a thing of Satan, many times when people become believers, in their first couple of years, really often in their first couple of months, is where they run into some deeply difficult time in their life, either with their health or with their family or with relationships, because Satan is trying to make sure that this faith dies. And so he brings about persecution. But the world does it too. And just because we might not experience it, let's not forget that we have brothers and sisters around the world who do experience this. And so pray. You know, when we pray for the persecuted church, it's not just some platitude that we're throwing up there. Realize that these are people who are losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their freedoms, losing their financial stability because of their faith. And you might say, well, you know, I can take this. I can do this. Bring it on. But what about when they attack your children? It's one thing to say as an adult, I can take this. But what do you do when it's your children's education that is going to be taken away because of your faith. Or your children's financial stability because of your faith. Or your children's health because of your faith. As a parent, that becomes far more difficult. And you know what? This happened not so long ago. In fact, Angela Merkel, her dad, now this is just what I, I've studied and read. I don't know Angela Merkel personally. But her dad was a seminary professor who chose to stay in East Germany when the split between East and West took place. And they had to make some hard choices because their children's education was going to be negatively affected because of his position as a seminary uh, professor uh, in East Germany. And so, you know, they, they made some choices. And whether or not you agree with the choices they made, 
uh, for their children. You know, they were in this very intense place. So this happened not so long ago, even within Germany. And so just know that. If you're under persecution, seek out people to support you and be in prayer with you because it is hard. And it's not something that I can say, oh, I know how you feel because I don't. I haven't been under persecution. My kids haven't been under persecution. I have not suffered because of my faith. In fact, except for a few family members that think I'm nuts and friends that thought I was kind of a bit, you know, I had gone nuts, uh, it's generally well-received. And if you need that place of prayer, please seek it out. And then there's the third enemy. He says this, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. And I call this the enemy of self. Our selfishness. Because... Really, the issue that this person has is that he's not so sure following Jesus is going to pay off. He's not so sure it's going to be worth it. And he's measuring the worth of his faith and the worth of what it means to, to know Christ. And he's, and, he, and he's trying to see them as equals. And they're not equals. Because no matter how much wealth you accumulate in this world, it is temporary. And it's not something that's going to go with you. But the treasure, as Jesus says, that you store up in heaven is that place where it cannot rust and the moth will not destroy. It is eternal. But this false equivalency of trying to say, is following Jesus worth it, is something that the West struggles with a lot. This is something I understand. And this is something many of you understand. That temptation of chasing after the temporary, which looks like it's going to yield you more financial security or more uh, societal you know, status, the temptation to chase after that at the expense of the things of faith. There's an American philosopher named Biggie who once said, more money, more problems. And this is actually a, a, a truthful thing. The more we have, the more we get tied to the temporary. And the more that temporary pulls us down into this place of a false sense of security, the more likely we are to place our faith at a distant corner of our, of our soul. Something we visit on Christmas and Easter. A place we may go, even a, maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe it's like a once a month time to church or, more, or even a weekly time to church, but then it just stays on Sunday. There's so many ways the world tries to marginalize faith. And you just look at how the deceitfulness of wealth messes up people's lives. Now, I don't think being rich is a sin. It kind of depends on how you get there. But you have to be careful. Because I've known rich Christians, and I've seen their struggle. And you know, what the, you know the place where a lot of rich Christians struggle with in their faith? the same place any other rich person struggles with, with their life, generosity. There's something that happens to us. The more we get, the more we want to hang on to. And I can say that from a personal effect as well. When I was young and I had nothing, I was super generous. Cindy and I, we would just, yeah, if we have it, we'd give it to you. 
Because we didn't have much anyway, I guess. I don't know what, what was going on in our heads. But once we had kids that we had to plan for, you know, once we had retirement we got to think about, once we had, you know, all these things of the world, it becomes harder to be generous. In fact, that becomes a big soul fight that a lot of people in the West struggle with. And if you're not from the West but you come into it, you get consumed by it even more quickly because now you have money. But you, but you look around you and you go, oh, what used to, what used to have been plenty now doesn't seem like enough because compared to others around you, you're not driving the same kind of car. You're not living in the same kind of house. And it becomes something that consumes everybody when they come into a place of wealth or they live in a society of wealth. It's a place of deceitfulness. And if you... I don't know about you, I have some rich relatives. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not very close to them. But uh, I have these, these rich relatives... And they're quite well off. And there's two things they always say. And I think you probably can identify with this. The first thing they'll say is when it starts to come up that they're well off, they'll say, oh, we're not rich. And you look at their huge house, their fleet of cars, and you go, how blind are you to your own self? Of course you're rich. Oh, we're not rich. And why do they say that? Why do people want to insist that they're not rich? Oh, we're not rich. Because they're afraid that there's going to be some responsibility on them if there is. And people will start to ask of them. And they might have to be generous. So they want to go, oh, no, no, we're not rich. And the other thing that they'll always say is they'll say none of their problems really have to do with money. And I have a cousin that spends several years in federal prison because of his love for money. He was a contractor, a builder. And he, he actually did his job as a contractor in a city for many, many years to the point where he built up a reputation. And then as he built up the reputation, more and more money came in. And he lost his mind and decided he was going to take this good reputation and use that to get banks to finance these huge projects where, which were in a different state far away. And then he ran off with all that money and tried to live, you know, without ever building the stuff that he said to build. He defrauded people for millions. And he had gone from a legitimate businessman who had really done quite a lot with his life given the, the, the obstacles he had in his life to just throwing it all away and going to jail, going to prison. He eventually threatened the life of an FBI agent. That's not good. And why? It was all about money. The deceitfulness of wealth. And you may say, well, we're not in that place. We're in church. Yeah, well, there's always, there's, you know, not everybody who's a liar is like the worst liar in the world, but these things can get into our lives. And I think one reason why Jesus tells the rich young man in the, in the parable, the story you'd know, the, the rich young man comes and says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, after going through some discussion about the law, says, you lack one thing, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And you know the story, the rich young man couldn't do it. And I think the reason why Jesus narrows this down to saying this is what you need to do is because this rich young man was so burdened by the temporary, so burdened by what he wanted to keep for the temporary, that he, he had to just kick it out if he was going to find the eternal. And he couldn't do it. And it says that Jesus looked after him with sorrow as he walked away because he just couldn't do it. Now, that's not saying we all need to be in that place, but that was his issue. 
And it's an issue that in the West we struggle with more than persecution. So these are the three enemies to the word of God bearing fruit. Satan, the world, ourselves. But then who's the Savior in all this? Jesus talks about the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times which is sown. I think this is one of these verses that we often just kind of read right over. Just like we often read over statements Jesus makes about himself which are profound and we just go whoop right over the top of them because they're so deep we don't really have an ability to realize what we're looking at. And I think in this particular section of scripture here there's an interesting caveat here that you have to be able to grasp in order to really get how deep this is because he says the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it which brings up the question then how do we go about understanding the word is understanding the word of God just simply a question of intelligence that you have to have a certain amount of intelligence to, to understand the Word of God? Is understanding the Word of God about culture? You know, you have to come from a certain background or culture in order to understand the Word of God. What does it mean to understand the Word of God? When did you start to understand the Word of God? Do you understand the Word of God? I believe that this is the question that is really addressed in the middle of the parable here. In chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And this is the question we'll look at next week. What does it mean to understand God's Word? What tools do we have to understand God's Word? And how do you go about understanding God's Word? Because we have to understand the Word of God before we can really live the Word of God. We have to understand the Word of God before we can apply it into our life in any kind of meaningful way. And I have realized over the many years is that there are people who are don't understand the Word of God who've been in church for a long time. And they'll, they'll come up, and they'll say something, and, and you just kind of realize at that moment, wow, they don't really understand this. And now I know a lot of you are going, oh no, I better not say anything to Jeff because now he's going to put me in this category. But that's not the point. The point is, even people who are uh, long-time believers and teachers of the world, Word can sometimes just not get what's going on. We, did a, we had a, a men's breakfast yesterday, and the, and the video of the person teaching it, he just, he just didn't understand a certain part of the scripture. He didn't understand which Herod he was talking about. He was talking about Herod, the son of Herod the Great, but he thought he was talking about Herod the Great. It didn't change the quality of the message, but it was interesting to me that this guy who is kind of seen as this teacher enough so that he's got a video series on Right Now Media, didn't know the difference between Herod the Great and Herod uh, Antiper, which was the Herod he was talking about. So there's, there's things that happen within us. And the Word of God, while it's simple, it can also be sometimes very complex. And so I want you to, to, to do a little favor for me. I want you this week to read this passage. I want you to read Matthew 13, 10 through 17, and I want you to ask yourself the question, how does a person come to understand the Word of God? Because Jesus kind of talks about it in, in, the, in this passage. How does a person come to understand the Word of God? And then we'll get into that next week. And another question I want you to ask as you leave the sermon today is I want you to just kind of look within yourself and say, ask yourself, 
What, what is the, the field of my soul or the field of my heart right now? How receptive am I to the Word of God? Am I hard? Have I gotten off? Have I stopped looking at Jesus and I'm back on this path? I'm just looking at what it takes to become financially successful, successful within our community, successful within titles and society. Are you there? Are you on that path? I had a friend I went to seminary with. He was a good guy. You know, he's in seminary. He's focused on the Word of God. And I don't know what happened, but about two years after he finished seminary, he just he went away from the church and went right back to working in the business world, which isn't a sin, but I don't think it was his call. It wasn't his calling, but he went back to that and had nothing to do with going to church, which was an issue for a person who was a believer. His heart had become hard, and he followed that path to success. Where are you? Are you in a place of worry? This corona thing makes a lot of people worry about a lot of things. Are you in that place of worry? Is it so much so that your faith is being shaken? Or are you pointing your finger at other people? One of the things that that we need to be careful not to have happen here, it's like this little rumbling throughout Christendom, not just this church, but there's like disagreement, like uh, if you wear a mask or if you don't wear a mask. Are these rules we're following uh, are, we, are we sacrificing our faith or are we trying to do our best to be a witness to the government as the scripture tells us to do? There's all kinds of rumblings and stuff about this whole corona thing that could even cause fractures within the body. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to let things like this uh, cause a fracture within the body of Christ. Are you in a place where you're feeling persecuted? Some of you I know, you do come from a place of persecution. Some of you I know, your families have rejected you. Some of you are in Germany because of your faith. You had to leave the country you were in, particularly if you came from a primarily Muslim country or if you came out of countries where, where communism is in place because where millions were killed because of communism, you know, capitalism has also caused millions to sell their soul. And so where are you in that? Sometimes making those transitions can be difficult from one system to another and still understanding your faith. But I want to tell you this. Wherever you've been at, you can always recultivate your soul to be that good field. If you choose to set yourself aside, like the song that we sang, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, You don't focus so much on, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. Just look at Jesus and follow him. And let him take you into that place of richness and hope. I used to have a friend of mine, he was a British friend. And he used to say, you know, Jeff, if I didn't fornicate as much as I do, and if I didn't swear as much as I do, and if I didn't drink as much as I do, well, I'd be a Christian too. And I used to tell him, listen, you don't have to get all these things straight Just follow Christ and let him work out the rest. And that's how you get to the good field. Just keep your eyes on him. Be open to the call of God in your life and where he wants to cultivate change in your life. Be you a believer or a non-believer, we need to always have a heart that's open to change through the power of God. And in this, we'll walk on the path that doesn't lead to destruction, but will be on the one that leads to eternal life. So next week, we'll take a look at the other, that part in the middle, and talk about that a bit more. But as you go on from here, just know that if you're in Christ, you have that which is eternal. 
And no matter how much the temporary offers you, it can never outweigh the eternal. A million euros of the temporary doesn't outweigh a single day of eternity with God. And just remember that. Because there's going to come a time when our bank accounts won't matter. But our souls always will. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that you guide us in your word. And uh, we do thank you for you know, knowing us as our creator so well. You teach us through story. You teach us through example. Sometimes explained, sometimes not. And, uh, and we thank you for all of it. And we do thank you for the word of God. How there could have been so many things put into the word of God, and yet it's, it's really a, a fairly small amount, given all the information that's available in the world, which should tell us that this is important. And these words are precious. And so, Father, we pray that as we are uh, on the path of eternity, that narrow way, that we would still be aware so that we don't have your word just land and, and have it taken away from us without us thinking about it, but that it will land on the good soil and that we will trust you, even in times of persecution, that you would give those who are in it uh, courage to get through. And for those many of us that are drawn by the deceitfulness of wealth, Lord, that you would help us to gain the perspective of eternity because only the perspective of eternity can overcome that lure of the temporary. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us in that place. And, Lord, we do pray for people who are undergoing some difficult times right now uh, because and young Christians undergoing difficult times. And I, I think in Nina, who's just kind of recently really given her heart to know you and to follow you, and yet uh, no sooner does that happen that she has this uh, relapse. And we do pray for her that she would be healed we understand as a child of eternity that uh, 18 years here or 80 years here are really kind of, there's not that much difference, but it does, it's meaningful to us. And so we ask that you would bring her to a place of healing. It's meaningful to her parents. And Lord, we pray for others who are undergoing difficulty right now, uh, who are new in their faith or who are considering faith. Lord, that they would see you through the storm and that they could build the house upon that rock and cultivate the garden of faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.